as Andy said, like, it's really humbling as, a, as a, one of the leaders involved in the life of this church, just to see people that want to be part of your family. That's a humbling experience to walk through. You know, you often sit there and you think, really? You want to be part of this? Amazing. <laughs> have you really found out? No, no. Um, have you really met that person yet? No, no, no. <laughs> have you met uncle, whatever? No, no, no. Um, but anyway, just, it's amazing when people just connect with you and that they feel this sense of, no, this is the family. This is the home that I want to be part of. Some of these people are completely new Christians, that this is the first church family they've ever been part of. And praise God, this is a place where they're learning to be discipled and to, to, to follow Christ. And I'm so grateful that that's been my journey for 20 years as part of this church, being part of the family, part of the, part of the kind of furniture and just loved and accepted and welcomed. And so we long to do that and then to see others that long to join us. And we're going to have a problem on our hands because eventually this room will not fit us in. You know, we, we hope and we pray that, that actually the family of God grows not that we just survive until the day that he comes back, but that it grows and that many others are saved and added and get to know Jesus and that our baptism tanks are full of people that are saying, I've put my trust in Jesus and our church family courses are full of people saying, I want to be part of the church. And so, come on, that's what we want to be praying for. That's what we long for. That's what we love to see. But it's hugely humbling when you see that because you realise it's God that always causes the growth. You just love him, you give yourself to him, you trust him, and then God does something supernatural and draws people towards his son. His son is the most attractive part of who we are, Jesus Christ. Most attractive part. So much more attractive than our times of worship, just how well we sing or how good the coffee is in the foyer or how great our website looks. All those things are good, but Jesus is the most attractive central part of who we're about. So when people meet and encounter him and are drawn towards him, that is something to rejoice in and to love God in. I'm going to be quite preachy today. Hope you enjoy it. Like, I just feel like I can feel myself a bit preachy, but that's all good. Um, Humbled as well on Wednesday night. Wednesday was, and if you weren't here, you missed out on an incredible opportunity to meet and encounter God together with Christians across the town and Ukrainians praying and singing and worshipping in this room with us and to come before the living God and to know that he's here and that he's sovereign and that he's seated on the throne. It moves your heart and it fuels your Christian life. And it stirs a passion in you. It says, I was just so blessed to have been here on Wednesday night. So thank you to every individual that came and joined us. What a joy it was to join with six or, I think it's about six or seven other churches from across the town, just in one voice. I had Rachel Michael text me immediately and say, so next Wednesday, dot, dot, dot. That's, the sort, that's what prayer in the life of the church should be like. We just should be drawn to wanting to pray and be with one another regularly in the presence of God, being equipped and empowered by him. And so that sort of response has bubbled out. And Mandy, for example, has opened up the Centro Lounge in town. And she's crazy because that's hard to manage that space. And you've got to work out keys of people opening it. But she's just said, I want this to be a place of prayer for anyone at any point to drop in on the town centre and to use that little Centro Lounge you've got right on Seaside Road as a place of prayer. You know, the war is not finished. We will continue to pray. So we as Christians are going to be devoted to that. We're going to keep doing it. So we're praying there. The, the, the prayer room's completely open here. Please come and gather and pray. And actually, if people want to gather again on Wednesday night, gather again on Wednesday night and pray. Stir one another. Do it in your life groups. Find others that you're just praying and seeking God corporately together. And it's amazing to do because, again, this humbles us. And it brings us to our knees sometimes. And actually, in the circumstances of life that we find ourselves in, humility is a good thing. There's a lot of arrogance in us sometimes that we got this, we're all right. But humility is that point in which we say, he's got this, he's all right. I can trust in him. 
can put my hope in the saviour of the world. I trust that he's the one that's seated on the throne, not me. And praise God for that. So we're going to continue to pray. Then humbled by the gift day that we took a couple of weeks ago. In light of the economic circumstances that we're facing, the church here over the last two weeks has given £80,000. Amazing. And it is. The the crazy thing from it is it's £80,000, I say, so far. Because I feel like every day David just sends another message, oh, there's another amount coming, there's this amount that's coming, this is coming in. And it's just been growing and growing and growing exponentially over the course of the last week and a bit. And I think at the start of the week, we thought it was about 60, and by the end of the week, it's 80. So I don't know where it's finished. That's because the goodness of God never runs out. He just keeps giving and providing towards us. So I just want to thank you, church. I, one of the leaders here, and again, on behalf of the leadership team and the elders, that Pius Church, just thank you. Thank you for responding in faith. Thank you for seeing this part of it. It's not just about washing our own face and making sure that we're provided for here, but I I genuinely cannot wait for the next couple of weeks to phone up people and say, here's an unexpected gift of 10 or 15,000 pounds that we just want to give you as a blessing from Eastbourne. You know, I, I love being in a church like that where generosity is the core of who we are. So I'm just so grateful because we could have all got very worried about escalating petrol prices or worry about how much, how, how many other, how's God going to provide for me in this circumstance that's about to arrive. And yet there's something of the gospel that stirs in our hearts that desire just to say, I trust him and I give. I trust him with all that I have and I provide. That that I have, I bring before him and I lay it before his feet and I say, Lord, use it. Use it for your glory and fame. And so I just want to pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God, for your provision. Thank you for Wednesday evening. Thank you for the chance to pray with others from across this town. Thank you for Ukrainian voices that sung and prayed with us on Wednesday evening. Thank you, Lord God, that you're seated on the throne. Thank you, God, that you rule. Thank you, God, that you provide. Thank you for my church. Thank you for my brothers and sisters in Jesus that love you as well. Thank you that I'm not doing this on my own. Thank you that we together are devoted to you and devoted to each other. Lord God, I thank you for what you're starting in this place. And God, we long to see all that you've got for us in the future. We trust you, Lord God. We put our faith and our hope in you and you alone. And together the church can say amen. 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 So let's see. We'll see where it ends up. What I'll do as well is we're going to start sharing out information. I'll be making contacts with people like the church in Berlin and I'll be able to share messages with us as a church just thanking you individuals for the gifts that we've given. We're very aware as well that people have been responding just out of, um, out of personal connections and relationships with situations in Ukraine. So there's been things like this Rainbow Wishes that's in Pevensey Bay that people have been collecting goods there and passing them out. So through Victoria Baptist, they have a very strong link into church in Ukraine. There's individuals here who we know people that have been trying to emigrate and to get out of the country and actually are now finding their ways into churches in Poland and churches in Krakow and we're looking to pay their rent during that time. At the moment, I feel like there's so much that could be going on. I want to find a unified way or something to bring clearly to us as a church. So we may do that in the next few weeks. So we feel this is a really key way that we're going to corporately gather our own gifts, offerings and give towards Ukraine as well. Um, but at the moment, please do keep finding those individual ways to show the love and kindness and goodness of God. Whenever I go onto social media, I see new opportunities to do that. So let's take them and let's show what it means to be followers of Jesus. Not just that we care for ourselves, but that we care for those that we might never, ever get to know that's what the goodness of God is like. So, um, so let's be like that. Right, today we're going to read a little bit in, and actually I've got three chapters of Joshua. So I'm not going to read three chapters of Joshua. It's chapters 10, 11 and 12. 
John's, because John won't care about doing this, John's going to sit on that speaker there the whole time. And every now and then I'm just going to ask him to read random verses from Joshua 10 to 12. Haven't got any slides. Well, I've got a couple of slides in a minute, but no, no Bible verse to appear in there. So if you've got a Bible on you, your phone, if you've got your actual physical Bible with you, you might just want to open it. And every now and then John might just chuck out a verse or two and you can see it and see where it fits into the story. But I'm going to try and give an overview of those three chapters and ultimately, I feel like it can speak very specifically into today in Eastbourne. What is the date today? Is it the 7th? 6th? It can speak into the 6th of March here in this town. I think it's, it's, God's word is living and active and it's going to do something in us today. Um, so I feel like this speaks into this little idea of, and you're going to notice actually a lot of it is to do with war. War is a human condition. It happens and it has happened. And sadly, until the day that Jesus returns, war will continue to be something that because of the human condition, desiring for power and influence and control will always besiege us. It will always be amongst us. We are in, in, in Western Europe, we are hugely blessed that for the last 70 years or so, we have pretty much lived at peace. Now, I think what's interesting is that, that people would have said, oh, we're beyond war now. All of a sudden, society, especially in the West, has built itself in a way which war will no longer be a problem amongst us. That is humans tricking themselves that we have found some secret way to solve problems that have besieged humankind all the way since Cain and Abel. It's always happened because there's always been war and there's always been power and there's always been bullies. There's always been individuals that have tried to place themselves as gods. There's always been injustice in the world. But we have one who comes to bring peace. That's what our king is about. He is not one of war. He is a king and a prince of peace. He comes to bring peace. He is the great hope of the nations, not Western democracy. He is the great hope of the nations, not the European Union or NATO. Jesus is our great hope. He is the one that it will be riding on a horse. He's the one that rides into battle and doesn't come to slay his enemies. He comes to actually bring peace with all of humanity. And he says, oh, the way that I'm going to do this is through this event that we spoke about earlier. I'm going, to, I'm going to break myself so that you can be restored. That's the sort of God that we worship. Our God is like no one else. He is the great hope that we hold on to. And so when you read stories like this, actually, and what you'll notice is that this is God's people walking into land and all of a sudden the enemies amass around them. Armies gather around God's people and especially around these Gibeonites that we heard about last week, who this little peace pact was made with. They gather around and they try to intimidate and say, no, this is our land. We're in control here. And actually, this is God's people saying, we will always come up against evil. That will be true. If you're a follower of Jesus, you will always bounce up against evil. We're people who are meant to take a stand against evil. We're people who are meant to take a stand against the powers of this world. And actually, do you know what our weapons of warfare are? They're prayer and they're worship. They're proclaiming the gospel. They're forgiveness. We fight in so different ways, but we still fight. Men and women of God, we fight against powers of this world and we trust that our king has been victorious and we do it on our knees as we go into battle. That's how we do it. We cry out to God. We trust that he is going to be victorious. We ask things in the mighty name of Jesus. We break bread with each other. We sing praise of worship and that's our battle cry. That's how we go out and fight. 
Our call to arms is calling us to pick up the word of God and to be reminded who he is. Our call to arms is to get onto our knees and put our hands together in prayer. Say, Lord, you're in control. You've got this. I'm crying out to you. I'm asking of you. But please don't believe that we're called to apathy. Please do not believe that the Christian life is one of observation in which we just watch as the global story unfolds until maybe one day Jesus comes back. No, we fight, we pray, we worship, we declare the goodness of God. We go out into all of the world and we show and display a very different kingdom from the kingdom of this world. That's exactly what God's people are being called to do. Joshua was all about gathering his people together and telling them, you're God's people. He's made a covenant with you. You're set apart. You're meant to be different. I've shown you my law. I've taught you my promises. Live differently from the people of this land and go and show them the way that you live differently. Devote yourself to me. Devote yourself to my, my, my love. Devote yourself to my word, to my goodness, to relationship with me and me alone. Don't worship any other gods. That was the story of getting Egypt out of Israel. Israel got out of Egypt very quickly, but he had to get all of that habits, practice, worldly behaviour out of his people. And it took him 40 years in the desert to do so. And then he says, get into the land and I want you to inhabit this land because I've promised it to you. This is your place. This is the place that I've called you to be a blessing to the ends of the earth. And what do the, what do the principalities and powers of this world do? They don't like it. They rise up against God's people. They try to intimidate them, they try to push back and God's people stand firm and they fight against the powers of evil and they overcome because we have one who overcomes. So we're going to read that, we're going to look at this human condition, we're going to think personally about what does that actually mean in my life and there's a little little personal application I'd like to bring today about leftovers, the leftovers that we leave in our own life and what you're going to notice is from this story is that actually Joshua was you know, you think Zelensky is, is like a, an incredible, like strong military leader. You just watch him in the face of Ru- Russian opposition at the moment. Zelensky, every evening comes on the news, you think, this man is hard. This man, also, and, and you look at the Ukrainian people and you just think, these people are hard. They're willing to stand in front of people with guns and tanks and not give grounds. Joshua was a hard as nails, rock solid, trust in Jesus kind of character. You know, it's, I, I don't know if I'd be like that. I just don't know. I don't think I'd be a Joshua person. I kind of hope I would. I don't know if I would be. But Joshua and Caleb, man, we're going to hear about him in a few weeks' time. These characters are like, we are not going anywhere. We know the promises of God. And they instill courage into the people. They're not afraid of anything or anyone. They were spies that went into the land and spotted some giants. And where 10 of them come back and said, no way, Joshua and Caleb said, give me the giants, God. Are there any, is there any Caleb's and, and Joshua's in this room? Is that, come on, <laughs> please, in a room like this, let's have a few Joshua and Caleb's amongst us. Individuals saying, give me this land, God. I'm overcoming. We're going to be victorious. We're going to trust. And it's not just about flexing muscle. It's about flexing a trust and a hope in Jesus, which does not waver or shake or move because he is the king. And he puts the steel into our bones. He's the one that strengthens us. And so you just watch them. You watch actually, and there's this really interesting bit though, because even though they go on this military conquest really of driving out these enemies that come against God's people... They, have, they leave leftovers. And a little story I want to come back to later is that what you'll find is that leftovers always come back. They always come back. Now, if I could tell it this way, 
Small snakes become big snakes and big snakes kill you. Okay, a small snake probably won't kill you. You know, maybe a little venomous one. But a little small snake boa constrictor is not going to kill you. It might hurt your finger a little bit. But small snakes become big snakes. And big snakes kill you. <laughs> and so often in our life, we leave a leftover. Some of you are in the trade here. I know some of you tradesmen and women amongst us. Some of you tradesmen leave leftovers in people's houses. I've found it when I've, you know, when I've taken the kitchen unit out and thought, did you leave that behind the kitchen? I didn't realise you'd left that. Now, not all of you. I'm not, I'm not tarnishing every tradesman. I just know that some people brush it away and think, well, they're never going to find that. <laughs> they're never going to find that bit back there because they'll never change this kitchen for another 20 years. But it always gets found. <laughs> leftovers always come back. They always do. And actually what you find out is that leftovers, as they resurface and they grow, they cause you problems into the future. God's people leave some leftovers in the lands. Leftovers grow and leftovers end up bringing a lot more pain into their future than they would have hoped for because they didn't deal with it at the time. That might sound something personal to you as well. Something you might just have a leftover in your own life. Little leftover bit that I just haven't dealt with. But it's okay. No one will ever see it or find it. No one will ever spot that about me. It doesn't matter. It's only a bit of internet browsing. It's only a little bit of leftover financial indiscrepancy. It doesn't matter. It's only a little broken relationship. No one will find out. Why does it matter? Because small snakes become big snakes. And big snakes kill you. We don't leave leftovers. This was done in full. Not in part, in full. That's where we're going to land today. I was going to land in this, so we've done it. But we'll be reminded, this was paid in full. No leftovers at the cross. Jesus doesn't leave leftovers. He completes it. It's done. It is finished. We get to live in the complete finished work of Christ. He's done it on our behalf. So let's be like Jesus and don't leave leftovers. Don't compromise. Don't leave little bits that will just resurface at some point in our life. So this is the way that it works. So just a couple of maps that will appear up here. Oh, sorry. Touch the microphone. You've got a couple of maps there? This is basically what we're looking at. This is a little bit just, you know, past the Sea of Galilee and you've got past the, the Dead Sea. All of a sudden you've got the River Jordan that's there. And this is all stuff that's now going on sort of to the west of the River Jordan. So Moses brings them in. Joshua leads them over the Jordan. And now all of a sudden they make this little pact with, you see that place that says Gibeon? So they made little pacts last week with the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites basically deceived them and told them they were from a long way away because they came with you know, fake wineskins that had crusted up and they came with worn out sandals saying, we've trekked a long way to get to know you, but can you see how close Gibeon was to where they were gathered in Gilgal? So actually they were quite a close city really, but they came and made this peace with God's people and God's people had made an allegiance with them. They said, no, no, we're protecting them now. They're part of, these, they're part of the people of God. They're included under our covenant promises. We're welcoming them into our people. That's what God's people have always been like. They've always been about including others in, welcoming people into the family of God. There's not an exclusivity about the gospel that says, this is for us and not for you. There's something about being set apart and different, something about saying, I'm a follower of Jesus and you're not, but there's not of something that says you can't get in on this. The good news of the gospel is that it always says, I found my way into it, you can find your way into it as well. 
If Christ welcomes me, he can welcome you. And so God's people welcome in the Gibeonites and all of a sudden, five armies rise up against them. They rise up against the Gibeonites and they say, Oi, we've noticed that you've made a pact with God's people and we're going to intimidate you. Sound familiar? We're going to intimidate you. We're going to show you our strength. We're the people of the lands. We're the people that are here. These are our cities that are around them. These are our cities and we're going to gather and the kings make this little pact together. They say, come on, let's go against the Gibeonites. Let's show God's people that this is our lands and they can't come into it. They rise up against them and, and all of a sudden the Gibeonites cry out to Joshua and they say, we need your help. Come on, you made a pact with us. We're under attack at the moment. Will you, come and, will you come and protect us? Will you come and bring your army? Will you come and bring your people? We saw what you did in Ai. We saw what you did in, Jer- in Jericho. Come and protect us now. Come and stand with your people. And that's kind of where we find ourselves in this, in this city. These united armies have come against God's people. And so the question is, will God's people remain strong and courageous? Or will they become complacent? Will they just watch now and say, oh, no, no, not for us? Or will they be obedient to the call of God, to the call of the Gibeonites? Will they go? Will they step out into what they've had? So you've got these five Amorite kings. They've come against Gibeon and they've made a pact of peace. So John, can you find me the first one? This is just Joshua 10 verses 1 and 2. Go for it, my friend. Read that just so we can see a bit of the story. So you, you can tell I'm not making it up. I can't do three chapters and read you the whole lot. I don't want you to feel like I'm making up a story. So I'm going to give you some highlights as they appear. Now Adoni Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it. He uh, totally destroyed it, doing to Ai and its king what had been done to Jericho and its king. And the people of Gibeon had a, made a treaty with Israel and had become their allies. He and his people were very much alarmed at this because Gibeon was an important city, like, the one, like one of the royal cities. It was larger than Ai, and all its men were good fighters. Okay, so all of a sudden you've got Adonai Zedek, who's the king of Jerusalem, that's there. You've got Hoam, who's the king of Hebron. You've got Piram, who's the king of Jarmuth. You've got Japhia, who's the king of Lashish. And you've got Debir, who's the king of Eglon. Actually, I might have done them in the wrong order. I think I've got them in the right order. Um, but they come up against the Gibeonites. They've now arrived. They've turned up as one united army to come and stand against God's people. And the Gibeonites are now going to call out and say, Joshua, we need your help. We need you to come and protect us and stand alongside us. Now, what's quite interesting in this little bit is, again, some of you will know your Bibles better than others. Has there ever been a story where a group of kings have tried to stand up against God's people before? Go on, be brave. Shout out if you think you can remember this story. 2 Corinthians 20. I want to go earlier in the story, though. Chronicles 20, I want to go even earlier though. Before this story, something else already has had a few kings that have rose up against one of God's people who's out to go and protect someone that he's in union with. Abraham and Lot. Abraham's nephew is called Lot. And Lot has four or five kings that rise up against him and take him into captivity. What does Abraham do? He pursues them. That's my nephew. You're not taking him. I'm going to get him back. Just in, I, just, I throw these things out there because I think there's interesting echoes throughout God's word. And actually, when I start looking at that, I think, well, what is this? Why is there two stories that have both got little echoes of kings that are rising up against one? Well, actually, ultimately, there's one bit, and this is an overarching bit of the whole story, that when you look at it, Abraham was just one man, but the promises of God were being fulfilled through this one man. 
That one man was important to God. God was going to protect him. Even if four or five armies rose up against him, God would protect his chosen people because God is sovereign. Now, all of a sudden, Abraham's family has increased and they have become a nation. Now, all of a sudden, there's five kingdoms that have risen up against one nation. But again, the promises of God will be fulfilled through his people. What is God? God is sovereign. He protects his people. He stands on their behalf. If people come up against his people, he stands before them. He'll be victorious. So what does that give me a confidence? If I start to see echoes of stories through it, I say, God protects his people. I'm part of the people of God. I can trust him. Even though the powers of this world may stand up against us, even though evil may seem large and significant and look like it's going to overcome, my hope is in the Lord's. He goes before me. He protects his people. He fulfills his covenant promises. If he makes a promise to you, he doesn't break his promises. He stands by you. In spite of a rising army, in spite of a numerical advantage, God's people prevail. Story of God. So basically then, can you, just because just I want you to see this uh, sort of Zelensky, Joshua kind of character. Chapter 10, verse 9. He hears the call and what does Joshua do? After an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. Joshua marches his whole army through the night. He doesn't wait for the morning. He doesn't say, we'll wait for breakfast time. This is a hard-as-nails military leader that says, God's people, get up. we got to go. We're going to Gibeon. And he marches them all through the night. And as they arrive, the battle begins. They turn up. They don't rest. They don't wait. They don't just observe. They don't just see what's going on. We're going. We've been called. Get your stuff. We're on this. Let's go. It's a call to prayer for us. Come on. We're not resting. We're not waiting. We're not watching. We go. Come on, God's people. Call to arms. Time to fight. And if it means we pray all through the night, we pray all through the night. If it means that we fast during this season because we deny ourselves physical food and comfort during this time, it's because we trust in God. We show our seriousness to this. We put our hope in him. We march all through the night and we say, Lord, we're yours. We're going to follow the call of God. Where you call us to, we're going to go. And that's exactly the sort of person that Joshua was. He stirs that up in their people. And all of a sudden, what do they do? They chase them. They chase all these five armies and the five armies disappear. Now, there's an interesting bit here about the sovereignty of God because in two parts, you'll notice, I can't remember quite where it is. Where does it mention about hailstones that's in there? I haven't got my Bible uh, on me. Verse, ele- verse 11. Verse 11. So verse 11, it mentions that more were killed by hailstones than were killed by the sword. That's a strange little observation there. And the second one is they managed to fight and finish the victory off because the sun stands still. That's two bits that are in this story. There you go. Hey, Ollie, I wonder why I got given this one. Talk about the sun standing still. Let's go for that astronomical event that's taking place. And I don't quite understand how all of a sudden gravity didn't break at that moment. And, you know, we understand that the sun doesn't really stand still because the earth spins. So it's not like the sun moves anyway. But in this exact moment, what it's teaching me and telling me is that the sovereign God achieves much more than I do in a battle. The sovereign God always achieves more than I bring into it. So God's people go with swords. That's their weapon of warfare. That's what we've been called to do, to chase and, pursue the, chase and pursue these five armies. But ultimately, God destroys much more than they ever do through a hailstorm. 
They think they're fighting through the whole day. And it, you, know, it gets, you, know, you could read, like, there's lots of different explanations for the stories of why the sun stood still. But again, there's little bits again where they're little echoes. So we won't go into it now, but there's echoes of this story appearing elsewhere. And hailstones happen somewhere else as well in Egypt when God's people are being freed from Egypt. And that's interesting, but we'll, we'll leave that as it is. So all of a sudden you're coming across and you're thinking, ultimately though, God achieves more. I put my effort into it. I'm called to participate, but there's something of an interplay between the personal responsibility of individuals and the sovereignty of God. That's, a, that's an interesting interplay, again, that happens in God's word. God is sovereign. He achieves things, but my actions matter and count. He, it says in there, this is the one day that God heeded the words of a man and held the sun still in its place. Just interesting where it falls. See, as well, like when, I, when I look at this little bit, I, I play cricket with my son quite a lot. And I love it because I, I like cricket, you know. I don't know why, I just do. I like wearing white, maybe, I don't know what it is. But there's something about cricket I just enjoy. I, when I retire, I want to live next to a cricket grounds and I just want to watch people playing cricket. That's what I'd like to do. It's a sad, sad little existence, but that's what I hope for one day. If it's in the, if it's in the Bahamas, Lord, I'll take that. Um, I don't know. But... It's in this little moment where when I was playing cricket with my son, first of all, what he'd often do is he'd hold the bat and I'd get, sometimes I'd get my dad to bowl the ball down and I'd put my hand over the top of him and I'd hold the bat over his shoulders and he'd play a shot, but really it was me being in all the power. I had all my arms over the top of him as he'd be holding it and he'd play the shot, but I'd play through with it. And he'd feel this sense of, did you see me hit the ball? See how far the ball went? Do you see the shot that I played? But there's this interesting interplay where God doesn't dis- discharge human, human intervention. He always, his story is always about involving humanity. The story would have gone much easier if he hadn't. <laughs> but he chooses to work through his people as image bearers of the living God. We're called to display his image in the world that we live in. The kingdom is not just built by God on his own. He involves us. I don't know why, but he does. His divine choice to work in and through us, his people, God's image bearers. But all of the power and all of the strength always comes from him. It's like a, it's like a dad who just puts his arms around us. So even when they go into battle and they fight, what is it? Well, it's just the Lord fighting on our behalf. Really, all of the power, all of the victory, all of the work is through God. And amazingly, he lets us feel like we're holding the bat and involved in it and playing the shots. It's incredible. But again, you see that throughout the story. God always finds moments where it seems completely like there's human weakness, but the power of God prevails in a circumstance. Oh Lord, would that be my prayer today? Lord God, I'm just going to pray in this moment. Lord, I pray in Ukraine now where it seems such human weakness in spite of a huge, vast army against them. God, would the power of God prevail? God, would the sovereign Lord display his mighty hands? And God, I thank you that you do it through individuals. You are raising up men and women in that country now that will come about bringing change for the future. God, you are raising up men and women as warriors who would stand on your behalf. Thank you for the church that exists in that place. Strengthen them today, Lord God. You're working in and through your people, Lord God. And we gather now as Christians here today in Eastbourne and we join our voices. This is our battle cry before you and say, Lord, have your way. Show your sovereignty. Lord God, show your might and power in and through your people and the people of God together can say amen. amen that's the sort of stuff that God does and this story teaches us a little bit about that the sovereign God does things see now all of a sudden what's interesting is 
All of a sudden, these kings, and you'll often find this, kings take all their people into battle. And while their people are getting chased off, the kings think, right, we're going to disappear out of here. We don't particularly fancy the battle very much. And they go and hide in a cave. So if you've got that slide again, the, the one that was just a picture, they go down to this place called Makeda, and they go and hide in a cave. The five kings, and they think, perfect, we'll ride this out. God's people will chase our people. We might lose our cities, but we'll survive. We'll make it. Joshua hears about this and he goes and he takes them. You might not enjoy stories like this. You might not enjoy stories in which Joshua says, these five kings, there must be justice for what they have done. They must pay the price for what they have stood up against. What they've called their people, they've, they've brought about an act of war and they must pay. So he arrives and verse 24, you got it, 10 verse 24, John? When they had brought these kings to Joshua, he summoned all the men of Israel and said to the army commanders who had come with him, come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came forward and placed their feet on their necks. So interesting because basically Joshua could have just killed him himself, but Joshua was a hard as nails leader. So what he did is he called his commanders and he said, come here, we need to, there's justice for this. I want you to put your foot on their necks and you're going to take their lives. Again, this is, this is not nice. Hey, welcome to church. Let's have a nice message that's going on here and feel good as we walk out of here. But this is the way it went with God's people. And the reason he did it with his commanders is because he was strong and courageous, but he knew that his people needed to be strong and courageous. Joshua would one day die. He was not the ultimate salvation, but he needed to instill that same strength and courage into those that he was leading. So he calls them and he says, you've got to do this. You've got to be part of it. So really, there's just even when you read these bits here, God involves us into the fight against the evil of this world. He's the one that's victorious. He's already strong and courageous, but he wants to teach us to be strong and courageous in this generation, in this day today. And again, our weapons of warfare is not swords and shields. We're not called to go and take on the crusade. Sadly, Christians have really badly interpreted things like this and said, let's grab a sword and a shield and go and fight. No, we're called our weapons of warfare, our prayer and worship and praise. But we have to do it being bold and courageous. Our weapons of warfare, actually, and when we devote something to destruction, it's actually our own sin in us. Come on, I devote this thing in me, this leftover in my life, this king that would want to take control of me. I overcome it and I stand on its neck because small snakes become big snakes and big snakes kill you and you don't let small snakes grow. You fight sin in your own life. You fight the power of the enemy in your own life. You fight your flesh. And you say, no, I'm not going to succumb to this. I know there's an easy hit here if I just succumb to the ways of the flesh, but I'm not going to do it because I'm a person of God. I'm strong and courageous. I put my foot on the neck and I say, no, you are not having power over me. Sin and death, you have no hold on me anymore. You're not being victorious in my life. I'm not succumbing to my old gambling habits. I'm not succumbing to my old addictions of pornography. I'm not having that extra drink just because it's where I used to find my comfort. I'm not walking back into that, that adulterous relationship I was in before because I fight against the flesh. I fight against the powers of this world and I say, no, Lord, you have been victorious and you teach me to be victorious too. You empower me to live a life that is pleasing and devoted to you. Preaching, come on. <laughs> All right? So what happens then is they overcome. They take the kings and as a result, they then take the kingdoms. 
all of the cities, they go back across. And none of these cities are like the Gibeonites. None of them want to make peace with God's people. They all want to fight. So God's people roll through and they take the lands and they take the cities, just like they did with Jericho, just like they did with Ai, they take the cities and the lands. And then what do they do? They head north. And again, you'd think the kings of this land would realise, and the Amorite kings would have been enough, but all of a sudden we get the rise up of all the otherites. You now get the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hittites, the Perizz- did I say Perizzites twice? They all rise up, these ites, all these kings that are there, and they think, okay, okay well, we better show ourselves. We sort of watch what happens to the five kings of the Amorites, but we're going to stand up against them now. And so what does Joshua do? He does the same. He says, come on, we're going. This is our lands. These people are evil in the sight of the Lord's. These people have practices. You heard a few weeks ago when Martin was preaching, you see what these people were like. So against the purposes and promises and people of God's. So against the way, the kingdom way that God's people were meant to behave. And so they go. And so t- you jump in a little bit now, but into 12, verse 4 to 5. And the territory of Og, king of Bashan, one of the last of the Rephites, had reigned in Ashtoreth and Edrai. He ruled over Mount Hermon, uh, Selica, and all of Bashan, and the border of the people of uh, Geshur and Makar and the half of Gilead uh, to the border of Sion, king of Heshbon. I get why you don't want to read that. Yeah, exactly. So these are all these lands that he's now taking and he's going up against them and he's starting to take them. But this is, this is a bit where I just want to start coming into land. All but verse 21. So you've got 12 verse 21 for me. 12 verse 21. Mm. Uh, the king of Takak and the king of Megiddo. Megid- yeah, we'll go. Megiddo. We'll Megiddo, go yeah, go on. Uh, the king of Kesha, the king of Jokaim and Carmel, the king of Dor in Nathor, the king of Goyim in Gilgal, the king of Tizra, and the 31 kings in all. Haha, <laughs> I've given you completely the wrong chapter. Should have been 11. Do you want me to skip that? I did I was think it didn't I was really like, fit. Interesting. He did kill all the kings, though. I gave you those. It's because 12, basically, the chapter 12, all they do is they go back across the whole list of kings and land that Moses has overcome, and they go through the whole list of land that Joshua has overcome, and it finishes with, and there was peace in the land, which is an amazing bit. But there's some leftovers that are left. Sorry, it was 11. 11.21. My writing, I can't read my own writing that I've scribbled there. 11.21, yeah. Uh, At the time, Joshua went and destroyed the Anakites from the hill country of Hebron, Debir and Anab from the hill country of Judah, and all the hill country of Israel. Joshua totally destroyed them and their towns. Okay, so it's interesting. Now all of a sudden he's starting to kill. Now this is an interesting one. There's this bit of these Anakim. This Anakim that are left there. And there's this strange bit because, do you remember at the very beginning, I said they went into the land, they saw giants that were of the lands. And the king of Anak was meant to be this tall, giant character that appears. And the Anakim, all these giant people that are around. So there's giants in the lands. We won't be afraid. There's giants in the land, but we're going to go in. And they start to say, we're going, to, we're going to get rid of these giant people, these people that have kept us out of the land, these people that scared us and intimidate us, people that stood up against us. We're going to remove them from their place of power. But sadly, in this little bit of it, is that they leave a little three. They leave a little remnant of Anakim that are left in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod. They just leave this little land. It doesn't explain why. I don't know why Joshua left them. I don't know why God's people left them there. But three little places get left. And does the name Gath 
resonate in your mind at all? Again, if you know your Bible a little bit, is there a character that you know that arrives from this place called Gath later in the story? Who is it? Goliath. So eventually, this little leftover remnant that gets left of these Anakim people, these descendants of Anak, these giants in the lands, funny enough, 400 years later, one of them turns up again. He arrives and he starts to show his power. And the Philistines rise up and they stand before God's people again. And this little remnant has just stayed, but now they're this force. And God's people are scared because the giants have come back. The giants are here. We can't overcome the giants. They're too big for us. But what does it take in that exact moment? What, is it, what happens when all of a sudden you've got a giant that stands before you? So Joshua's gone. Caleb's been. It's 400 years later. God's people still tell stories of when they took Jericho and they took Ai. But they don't behave like that anymore. They're scared. Who walks onto the scene before Goliath? David. Come on, Malk, you're coming. He's preaching for me. It's a frustrated preacher sitting in the middle there. But Joshua, this little priest king, arrives on the scene. Looks like a Joshua character. And all of a sudden he arrives and he says, I'm not afraid of the giant. He's defied the armies of the living gods. And again, he knows that God defends his people. And so when they give him swords and shields, he picks up a sling and a stone. Because again, he understands that the sling and the stone isn't really going to kill a giant. But he understands that God holds the cricket bat. I'll walk into battle. I don't need the might of an army to show this because the Lord fights my battles on behalf. And this young little priest king wanders onto the battlefield again and swings a stone around his head and throws a stone and it hits the giant in the temple in the head and he falls to the floor. And what does David do? He stands on his neck and he removes his head and he says, no leftovers. And then the beauty of this moment as well is then David says, people of God, chase them, go. David doesn't go fighting all the Philistines. He then says, come on, armies, go. Pursue the Philistines. Take them. There's nothing to fear anymore. I've overcome. I've been victorious. You go. Take them. They're ours. The Lord has handed them over into our hands on this day. And then let's fast forward again to another giant that appears before us. The giant of sin and death and sickness and suffering. The evil one. Satan. Maybe the biggest giant of them all. The one in which we could all fear. And who walks onto the scene? Little priest king. Jesus. The true Joshua. The true David. The overcomer of giants. And what does he do? He walks onto the scene. And actually his weapons of warfare are nails and a bit of wood. And what he does is he doesn't devote to destruction the cities of this world or the enemy there. He devotes himself to destruction in full. And he says, I will be broken. I will be broken by the powers of evil and darkness in this world. I will, I will give myself freely to suffer and die on a cross in order to bring the victory. If you read back in the beginning of Genesis, what happens to the serpent? It will strike his heel, the seed of the offspring, and he'll crush his head. Jesus crushes the head of the enemy in his victory on the cross. 
The moment that he dies and he rises to life once again, the enemy is destroyed once and for all. And then what does he say to his people? Go. You're my people. Go and take my kingdom to the ends of the earth. Go and stand up against evil wherever you would find it. I've been victorious. The victory has already been won. There's no fear. There's no worry. There's no condemnation in these things. But you now go as representatives of the living God. We leave from this place today knowing that actually he is the one that has been completely victorious over all things. And we trust in him. And we say, Lord God, you have done it. And we now go empowered by the Holy Spirit to go and take the goodness and the kingdom of God into the world in which we live in. Every church is like a little outpost of the kingdom of God in a broken world. Every church, and actually the supply lines towards us is this outpost that are fighting this thing and staying in the world. The supply lines from heaven are never broken. The supply lines of the goodness of God continues flows towards us as his people. And he says, go establish outposts of my kingdom in every street and every neighborhood and every family and every tribe and every tongue and every nation. Because I am forcefully advancing. The kingdom of God overcomes. We know that he's victorious. We know that one day he returns. We know that it's his that brings all of the victory and all of the glory. And we're his people. And we stand and we fight. And we say, Lord God, we trust in you. We know that you've got this. And we pray without ceasing and we worship without ceasing. And we gather every week like this. And we break bread with each other. And we give beyond what we can afford to give because we trust in God. And we believe that he's the one that is being victorious in and through us as his people. Be strengthened today. Be strong and courageous. Go, put your head on the foot of the enemy and say, no, I'm not doing this. In my own life, I'm not succumbing to sin in my own life anymore. I'm going to be victorious over these things. I'm not succumbing to the enemy around me. I'm not succumbing to the patterns of this world. I'm not behaving like everyone else. Everyone else might struggle with forgiveness. I'm going to choose to forgive. Everyone else might live this way. I live differently because I'm God's people. Do we get it? Come on, this is who we're called to be. So I'm just going to pray and we're going to sing as we finish. So I'm going to read to you Romans 5, verse 17 to 19. I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. I love this translation of it. I think it will appear behind me. Let's read Romans 5. I just want us to make a joyful noise to God as we go. So why don't you just stand with me as I just read this bit. Brilliant. It's on the, on the screens behind. But as I read it, I just want you to hear this incredible truth of what Jesus has done on our behalf. The sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. See, the consequences of individuals count. One man tarnished and brought sin into the world for all. Individual actions really matter. The sin of this one man, Adam, calls death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Read that again. Even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and over death. You will have victory over sin and over death. You're God's people. How will you have it? You'll have it through the victory of this one man, Jesus Christ. He comes to bring us the victory. 
and it's for all who will receive it. If you receive it, live in it. Live in the good of it. Understand that you receive grace. They receive your victory from Him and Him alone. Yes, Adam, one man's sin brings condemnation for everyone. Everyone lives under condemnation. None of us are the good guys. Don't think that you're the good guy and someone else is bad. All of us were the bad guys. One man's sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. We get to live in the victory of Jesus. We get to become the good guys because Jesus is the ultimate good guy. We get welcomed in because we put our faith and trust in Him and Him alone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one person, just one, obeyed God, many will be made righteousness. Jesus, all the victory is yours.